Good morning. It's Thursday, September 7th. Welcome to another Look Back edition of Roadmap to Heaven. While I'm away on vacation, we're going to bring you some of those segments that have meant something to us over the past few years. But before we get to that, we always begin the morning with the morning offering, and today will be no exception. We pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day for all the intentions of your Sacred Heart in union with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world, in reparation for my sins, for the intentions of all my relatives and friends, and in particular for the intentions of the Holy Father. Amen. We dedicate all of our thoughts, words, and actions to the greater glory of God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today, while I'm away on vacation, we want to bring you two segments, one from Dr. David Anders and then one from Father Wade Menezes. Dr. Anders and I will cover a whole host of questions in a conversation that we had last year at the Catholic Radio Conference. And then Father Wade Menezes is going to break open the works of mercy for us. Before we get to any of that, though, we want to make sure we get you Mike Roberts in today's weather and saint of the day. Today is the feast day of Blessed Frederick Ozanam. Born in Italy in 1813, his family moved to France as they raised their 14 children, but only three would survive to adulthood. As a young man, Frederick began to doubt his Catholic faith, but numerous conversations with a priest in Lyons helped him gradually regain his trust in God, and from that point on, he became an advocate for the Lord's children, especially his poor children. In 1831, he went to study law at the Sorbonne, defending the Catholic Church when other professors mocked her during their lectures, and while there started a debate group with members that included both those with great faith and those who had none at all. It was designed to allow all to argue their beliefs. At one point, a member of this club said, let's be frank, what do you do besides talk about your faith? This completely threw Frederick but also moved him, and soon he and his friends began to visit the poorest parts of Paris, eventually helping to start the St. Vincent de Paul Society. While Frederick finished his law degree, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul grew, spreading across Paris, then France, then the rest of Europe. He married Amélie, and they had a daughter, Marie. Revolution had left nearly 300,000 people without work in France. Frederick guided the St. Vincent de Paul Society to provide aid when there was no other source for help. He always struggled with his health, and in 1852 went with his wife and daughter to Italy to try and recover from illness, but a year later he died. At his funeral, longtime friend Father Lacordaire said Frederick was one of those in whom God joins tenderness and genius in order to enkindle the world. Blessed Frederick Ozanam, please pray for us. I'm meteorologist Mike Roberts for Covenant Network. Have a blessed day. Saint of the Day can arrive each morning by subscribing on your favorite podcast player. Search Covenant Network to see all our podcasts. The following is an encore presentation. We are on the road at the EWTN Catholic Radio Conference, and I'm happy to be sitting down with a man whose voice you know every weekday here on our airwaves at 1 p.m. That's Dr. David Anders from Call to Communion. Dr. Anders, it's good to be with you today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. What a wonderful conference we're having so far, and, and a great time to grow closer to our Lord. I, I'm having a great time. We had a, a retreat yesterday out in the desert. At a, out literally. Already, out in the desert, literally. <laughs> you know, I, I, I took a picture next to about a 30-foot cactus. We don't have those in Alabama. 
uh, at Our Lady of Solitude uh, Monastery. So that was delightful till our bus broke down on the way back. But, you know, we made it. Beggars can't be choosers. Beggars can't right? be choosers. Exactly. Well, Dr. Anders, we always enjoy the insights you bring to our airwaves with the questions um, everyone calls in and asks. And I actually had a very specific one for you today. It's something I've noticed as more and more of my friends have left the Catholic Church, sadly, and gone to some of the uh, evangelical churches in the area. The question of baptism comes up, and it's why do Catholics baptize infants when a lot of the evangelical churches specifically say we will not baptize infants, we want adults to make the choice. Even without that, more and more people in our society say, well, I don't want to make the choice for my kid either. I'd like them to grow up and make their choice. So I guess that's the question today. Why do we do that as Catholics? Why do we baptize infants? Sure. So there are several things I want to say about that. First of all, the Scripture tells us to, in Acts chapter 2, when the Peter preached at Pentecost and the people came to him and said, what must we do? He said, repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promises for you and for your children and for your children. And so Acts chapter 16, Paul baptizes the Philippian jailer and his children. His whole household is baptized along with him. And this is in accord with the Jewish sensibility, which saw the, the covenant of Abraham is something that's not just open to discrete atomic individuals, but to, but to people groups, to their families, to their heritage, which is why the sign of circumcision was applied to the children uh, of the covenant. They don't have any conscious participation in this. It's something they grew up within and they're nurtured. And so both in the old covenant and the new, this is the, this is the idea. You know, that if, if the circumcision was a sign that God would give grace to the children of Abraham, and the reality, of course, comes in Christian sacraments, uh, and the sign was applied to children, I mean, is the point of the new covenant to restrict the flow of grace or to expand it? Well, it's, it's to expand it, not to restrict it. And so if God didn't withhold the sign from, from old covenant believers, why would he withhold the reality from the children of new covenant believers? Jesus himself said, don't hinder the little children, but let them come unto me, first to such of these is the kingdom of heaven. So we have a scriptural warrant for the thing. I mean, what baptism accomplishes is it washes away original sin, fills with sanctifying grace, makes us members of Christ's body, the church, and priests, according to the baptismal priesthood, that we can offer our lives to him. And offer our bodies in living sacrifices, St. Paul says. This is our spiritual act of worship. So why would you want to deprive your child of all those good things and let them grow up in the care and the nurture of the church? Now, on this point about waiting until kids are, you know, the age of reason or they can understand or they can make a rational choice, I would say that that radically misunderstands the, the, the nature of moral, the moral development of a person. I mean, imagine if my parents said to me, uh, you know, we're going to, you know, put some Bibles out and some catechisms lying around the house, but we're also going to throw out a bunch of pornography and R-rated movies and, uh, and, you know, say radical political literature, and you just explore freely and look around and make up your own minds about what you want to get. And when you turn, say, maybe 12 years old, then we'll bring you to, like, our concrete particular view of the faith and present that to you as an option. But by that time, you'll have developed morally enough as a person that you can make an informed choice. That would be insane. That would be insane because the, the choice for or against morality or for or against faith is not a purely detached sort of rational deliberative decision. It's made in the context of a life that's been formed with a certain kind of sensibility and habits of say, saying no to vice and to the vicissitudes and the vanities of my own imagination and learning to control my behavior and to respect other people and to respect the value of community and, of, uh, and, and the dignity of the human person. Those are things that are not so much uh, taught as they are caught and learned by habituation. And so 
there's a not only is there a biblical warrant, but there's a logic to the idea of baptism in infancy and being brought up in the nurture of the church and the knowledge that one is a member of a community and a child of God from infancy, so that that sensibility, uh, not only sort of the reasons for faith, but the but the uh, uh, you know but the emotional, affective, imaginative elements of the human person, which are really the context in which faith happens, that those develop uh, as the child grows. So their capacity to make moral choices is fully developed by the time they come. Well, not fully developed, but it's developing along with their rationality and their ability to understand. I'd also add that the idea that we can make this sort of fully uh, uh, independent, rationally deliberative, objective view of the truth once we have all the facts is, is fallacious. It's a fiction. Like, none of us is ever in that position. Like, I'm 52 years old, and I'm, I still don't have possession of all the facts, right? Faith is a gift. Faith is not something that I come to utterly dispassionately from the outside. Faith is something that, I, that is given to me by the grace of God, mediated through instruments. And the first of those instruments are, of course, my parents and, and the church of my childhood. Since we have the opportunity to sit down with you, an, another question I wanted to ask is in the broader picture, because a lot of... A lot of people call into the show and ask you questions. They call into Open Line. They call into Catholic Answers. It's a very common thing for people to have questions. And one theme that's become very apparent as we've been gathered here for this retreat and conference is that right now the world needs the truth more than ever. Um, so I want to ask, before we conclude, what would you say to our listeners who are saying, well, I'm not... I don't know, why should I study the faith more? I mean, I go to Mass, I practice my faith, I pray. Why do I need to study the catechism or study the faith more? Right. Well, I, I, first of all, I think that far more important than an intellectual grasp of Catholic doctrine, although that can be very helpful, is a deep lived experience of the presence of Christ and the conformity of my life to His. Right. Ultimately, we're not saved by knowledge of the catechism. We're saved by charity, by the conformity of our life to Jesus. And it is possible to have a deep intellectual knowledge of the faith and not to live in the state of grace and not to live charitably and to become an offense to the cause of Christ. So I, I don't actually think that it is the vocation of every Catholic person to become an expert in Catholic doctrine. I don't believe that. Peter tells us that we have to have reasons for the faith that is in us, but those reasons need not be exclusively academic uh, or, or, or doctrinal in form, right? And depending on the character of the individual in question, um, it's just as legitimate for someone to bear witness to their experience of Christ in their interior life or, say, you know, in the charity of a Mother Teresa or in the kindness they received from a priest in the confessional or something like that. Those are, those are also perfectly legitimate reasons to come to faith, even as the ability to clearly articulate Catholic doctrine also gives cogency and intelligibility to the faith. So I just want to make that point clear. Um, but uh, all of us, to one extent or another, uh, participate in, in the rationality of God and uh, the act of faith is not contrary to reason, and our minds crave intelligibility and coherence. And so when we're given a faith to believe, when we're offered articles of faith to assert, and we don't understand how those things cohere rationally, and particularly how they cohere with our experience of the world, it creates cognitive dissonance in us and other people. 
uh, that can become a motive for disbelief. And so a proper understanding of the faith and a knowledge of how to, how to defend it and how to interpret it and how to, uh, uh, how to reconcile it with the contradictions of the modern world is very helpful for having a mature, satisfying, and intellectually satisfying faith that we can present to others. But that's clearly not the only mode of evangelization or of, uh, or of reasons to believe. Well, Dr. Anders, I want to thank you for being with us on Roadmap to Heaven today. If you want to hear more from Dr. David Anders, tune into EWTN's Call to Communion, which you can hear every weekday here on Covenant Network at 1 p.m. We're going to take a break. We'll be back after this. Daily Offering God the Father, I thank Thee for creating me. God the Son, I thank Thee for redeeming me. God the Holy Spirit, I thank Thee for sanctifying me. Infuse into my thoughts, words, and actions thy grace, so that they may be supernaturally pleasing to thee and supernaturally rewarding to me forever. O blessed Trinity, abundantly assist me in becoming that which thou intended me to become when thou created me. For in thy perfection I will give thee the glory thou desirest of me, and in that perfection I will find my greatest joy in heaven. Amen. The following is an encore presentation. We are back. You are listening to Roadmap to Heaven on Covenant Network. It is always a treat to speak with Father Wade Menezes. I always have my notepad handy because I feel like I am going to class, and as my eighth grade teacher used to say, this will be on the test. And certainly, Father, what we are going to talk about today will be on the test. That's right. Amen. And, and before we begin, Adam, can I just say that I love your intro music because I'm a fan of country music. I live just about 50 miles from Nashville, and I always think of the Grand Ole Opry when I hear your, your introduction music. And that's a compliment. I think it's great. Oh, I, I do. I, I have a, you know, I love all sorts of music, but bluegrass and country, that, that's one area yeah. that particularly sticks out. Father, we're going to talk about the works of mercy today. And every time I think about the works of mercy, I, I think about these two passages from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 26, and I'm going to go in, in reverse order. I'm going to start with the later passage. In chapter 26, we have the anointing at Bethany, and what's the line we always hear? Why has this been wasted? It could have been sold for much and the money given to the poor, and our Lord responds, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And we kind of get the sense, why, you know, why worry about the poor? We're always going to have the poor with us. But in the preceding chapter, in chapter 25, our Lord talks about separating the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. And to uh, kind of abbreviate this, they said, well, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we do these things or not do these things? And some have said that, you know, we don't have a responsibility to do these works because, well, there's always going, we're always going to have the poor with us. What's the point? Yeah, that's that's exactly right, and and we will always have the poor with us because of the result of the original sin. We live in a broken, wounded world where we have things like homelessness, where we have things like the hungry, where we have things like those who are not living upright moral lives, who, who need to be instructed in the faith. And this is where the 14 works of mercy come in. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2447, says very clearly, the works of mercy are charitable actions by which we come to the aid of our neighbor in his spiritual 
and bodily necessities. Telling us right there of the reality of the body-soul compositeness of the human person. We don't have bodies. We are bodies. We don't have souls. We are souls. So intimate and intricate is the body-soul compositeness of the individual human person that we can say that and mean it. We, we don't have bodies. We are bodies. We don't have souls. We are souls. And this body-soul compositeness of the human person, the individual human person, exists in the reality of this broken, wounded world. So we have things like the seven corporal works of mercy for the, from the Latin corpus meaning body, right? So we have things like to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to clothe the naked, to visit the imprisoned, to shelter the homeless, to visit the sick, and to bury the dead. And then the seven spiritual works of mercy for the soul. We have things like to admonish the sinner, to instruct the ignorant, to counsel the doubtful, to comfort the sorrowful, to bear wrongs patiently, to forgive all injuries, and to pray for the living and the dead. Now you say, you know, these can well be on the test, that yes, the great test of life, because of the gospel passage you just quoted with Jesus' own wor words, you know, when you saw any of these things needed to be done to the, to the least of your brethren, when you did them, you did them for me, huh? So we can say, Adam, and mean it, that the works of mercy are practices considered meritorious in Christian ethics, right? Especially within Catholic Christian ethics, uh, holding the fullness of truth in our one holy Catholic and apostolic church and all that she presents to us as needed for salvation. Um, the, the practice of the 14 works of, mer of mercy is popular in the Catholic church as both an, uh, an act of penance and an act of charity, uh, both for the doer and the receiver, huh? and can aid in the sanctification of both giver and, and recipient. Uh, the works of mercy have been traditionally divided into two categories, each with seven elements, and they are based on the body-soul compositeness and reality of the human person's makeup. So we simply say this, the corporal works of mercy concern the material and physical needs of others, that is, cares for the body, and we say that the spiritual works of mercy concern the spiritual needs of the person, that is, the care of the soul. And so with the corporal works of mercy, and you kind of highlighted this, Adam, in, in your opening comments, uh, the corporal works of mercy are those that tend to the bodily needs of other human persons. The standard list is given by Jesus in chapter 25, verses 35 through 46 of the Gospel of St. Matthew in the famous Sermon on the Last Judgment. Uh, some of the corporal works of mercy are also mentioned in chapter 58, verses 6 and 7 of the book of Isaiah. And the seventh work of mercy to bury the dead comes from chapter 1, verses 16 through 18 of the book of Tobit. I love the book of Tobit because it focuses so much on the beautiful sacrament of matrimony. And then just as the corporal works of mercy are directed towards relieving corporeal suffering, in other words, bodily suffering, again, from the Latin corpus, which means body. We talk about the corpus of Christ on the cross. It's a crucifix. A crucifix is different from a mere cross. So just as the corporal works of mercy are directed towards relieving corporeal suffering, the aim of the spiritual works of mercy is to relieve spiritual suffering. Uh, the spiritual works of mercy have long been a part of the Christian tradition, appearing in the works especially of theologians and spiritual writers throughout history. And just as Jesus attended to the spiritual being of those he ministered to, uh, we say that the spiritual works of mercy guide us to help our neighbor in his spiritual needs. Now, Father, as we look at the list of the spiritual works of mercy, the corporal works of mercy, some of them uh, second nature to us. I mean, uh, especially praying for others or feeding the hungry. I think of all the times that we, we send our canned goods to the 
food pantry or we, we send a monetary donation to our local St. Vincent de Paul conference. Um, you know, here in St. Louis, where I live, we have several homeless shelters that are in, in constant need of support. And that's a very easy one for me to say I can write a check. I don't know that I have the ability to take someone into my home, but I can certainly contribute to these worthy uh, worthy places. But then I think of things like burying the dead. You know, I, I don't really have the occasion very often to bury the dead. So the question that comes to mind, you know, are the works of mercy, is this something we should be looking to do all 14 on a regular basis? Do we do we, do we do some? Do we not do them all? How do we approach this? Oh, boy, that's a great, great question. And I'm so happy you asked that specific question because I'm ready to answer it because there's no need for scrupulosity here, but nor is there a need for laxity here on the part of the Christians. So Pope John Paul II, he issued his papal encyclical Divas in Misericordia, Rich in Mercy, in 1980, declaring that, quote, Jesus Christ taught that man not only receives and experiences the mercy of God, but that he is also called to practice mercy towards others, end quote, huh? Uh, a notable and pious devotion associated with the works of mercy is the Divine Mercy devotion itself and the Divine Mercy chaplet that stems from that devotion. And that, of course, those, of course, derive from the apparitions of Jesus Christ to the canonized Polish nun, St. Faustina Kowalska. And Faustina talks about this, what she can and can't, cannot do based on the rule of her, of her uh, religious congregation as a consecrated religious. So based on Jesus' doctrine of the sheep and the goats, the cor corporal and spiritual works of mercy are a means of grace as good deeds, but they are also works of justice that are pleasing to God. So philosophically, and this answers your question here, philosophically, the precepts of the 14 works of mercy are affirmative ones. That is, they are, they, they are of the sort that is always binding, but not always operative for lack of matter or occasion or fitting circumstances in which to carry them out, okay? So in general, it may be said that the, the determination of their actual obligatory force for the Christian in a given case, depends largely on that Christian's capacity or ability. I'm going to have a lot more opportunity as a priest to literally bury the dead than you are, right, as a layman. But there's things you can still do that fulfill the precept, the affirmative precept to bury the dead. So there, there are easily recognizable limitations, we could say, that these precepts undergo in practice according to a person's state and life and vocation, so far as the performance of the corporal works of mercy are concerned, the corporal ones. Now, likewise, the law imposing the spiritual works of mercy, the seven of those, is subject to individual instances to certain limitations or reservations as well. For example, some spiritual works of mercy may require particular tact, prudence, or knowledge to instruct the ignorant, for example, or to counsel the doubtful, or to console the sorrowing. Uh, is not always within the competency of every person. However, Adam, to bear wrongs patiently, to forgive offenses willingly, to pray for the living of, and the dead, oh yeah, we can all do that. Yeah. All of us can easily do that. And because these don't require some special array of gifts or talents for their observance by the one carrying out the precept, the work, or the act of mercy. So they're all in the affirmative, to do this, to do that, to do this, to do that. But according to one's state and life and vocation, while you may not be able to carry out the precept 
literally, whether corporal or spiritual, whether for the body or for the soul, there's other things you can do. In fact, there's a listing at usccb.org, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, that gives examples that we can all carry out based on one's capacity uh, or lack thereof or abundance thereof that we can still do. Father, this is a good place to take a break. Friends, we're talking with Father Wade Menezes about the 14 corporal and spiritual works of mercy. We will be back right after this. A prayer to Our Lady of Guadalupe. Our Lady of Guadalupe, mystical rose, make intercession for Holy Church. Protect the sovereign pontiff. Help all those who invoke you in their necessities. And since you are the ever-Virgin Mary and Mother of the true God, obtain for us from your most holy Son the grace of keeping our faith, of sweet hope in the midst of the bitterness of life of burning charity, and the precious gift of final perseverance. Amen. We are back. You are listening to Roadmap to Heaven on Covenant Network. We are talking with Father Wade Menezes from the Fathers of Mercy about the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. And just before the break, Father, you mentioned a list of these that we can find at the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops website. I'm looking at this list. Immediately, I think of the wonderful students at Christ Prince of Peace School in St. Louis that the second graders every year would assemble packages for the homeless. And it would be uh, just a gallon-sized Ziploc bag with some protein bars, some hand sanitizer, some uh, baby wipes, some other products that could be helpful to that person who is homeless. And they would prepare those and then give those to the parishioners who would be in a better place to distribute them because second graders probably are not going to drive around town handing out bags, but they can participate in that work. And same thing with the food drives. One that always sticks out was a parish that I worked at where the funeral choir was not a group of singers. It was a group of parishioners that would attend every funeral, whether they knew the deceased or not, to be there to make the responses to the prayers and the readings and just to pray for the person who had died. And I think that's a beautiful example of burying the dead. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and the list goes on and on. Again, your listeners can find these two lists at usccb.org. But uh, for example, regarding the spiritual works of mercy, counseling the doubtful, you know, to give counsel to the doubtful. uh, Has someone asked you for advice? If so, orient your response to them toward Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Follow Christ within the witness of your own life so that others may see God's love revealed in your own daily actions. Um, Also under Counseling the Doubtful, the Bishop's website has a company of friend who is struggling with believing in general uh, to join a parish group uh, for for service or faith formation. Uh, Share a book that you found useful in growing in the faith uh, and share that book with your friend for their own faith concern that might be lacking. Invite someone to go to Mass with you, huh? Uh, Instructing the ignorant. 
you know, share, share a catechism passage with somebody that really helped move you, huh? Again, invite someone to go to Mass with you. Um, how about admonishing the sinner, someone who's objectively speaking, not living a, a morally upright life? You don't know where they're at subjectively, but objectively you can make the judgment. So don't judge, but guide others towards the path of salvation, like Matthew 7 verses 1 and 2 tells us. Uh, when you correct someone, don't be arrogant about it. Uh, we are all in need of God's loving correction, even the most just person. Uh, we need to journey together to a deeper understanding of our shared faith, right? So these are these are all important things, uh, and then and then as far as um, the, the the body goes, uh, the corporal works of mercy, going back to burying the dead, uh, be faithful about attending wakes and visitation services of friends or family members, and attend their mass of Christian burial if one is had, um, support or volunteer at a hospice organization. Uh, participate in your parish's bereavement ministry. So again, according to one's capacity and so forth, uh, uh, we shouldn't become scrupulous about the 14 works of mercy, nor should we become overly lax. Now, Lent is a, is a special time of the year to focus on the 14 works of mercy and the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. There's our two blueprints, uh, th or three blueprints, if you want to count the works of mercy as two, the seven for the body and the seven for the soul. We have these, and then, and then the uh, preeminent good works, prayer, fasting, almsgiving. There, there's your three blueprints for Lent. But really, we should always be looking to these blueprints, um, the spiritual works of mercy, the corporal works of mercy, and the three eminent good works, to always be attending to others in need in any way, whether bodily or corporally, corporally, and also to our own life, you know, with, with prayer, fasting, and almsgiving to be the best Christian soldier we can be. Now, Father, before I, I, I do want to come back to that, because that is something that I see uh, from place to place. It does become a little concerning, but before we, we go there, you, you know, you've mentioned a couple times not being overly scrupulous, and immediately one of the things, one of the challenges I think of we see more and more persons standing on the roadside at the highway exit with a sign asking for money or asking for food. And I know myself sometimes, my wife, I'm sure many of our listeners, we have great hesitation in instances like this. We don't want to turn a blind eye to those in need, but we've also heard so many stories about people that abuse that. You know, that, that for uh, lack of a better term, they're, they're pretending to be in need. They just want the money. And it's very unfortunate that this is even a concern that some have. Uh, my question is, how do we approach that? Is there an idea that, you know, my call is to be charitable, and if the person abuses the gift, that is on their soul and not on mine? How would you counsel someone? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, for example, you might be reluctant to give uh, green cash at the top of the off-ramp uh, where the person's standing there off the interstate because you don't want them to use it towards uh, their drug habit if they indeed have a drug habit. And so, in, in one sense, you're the giver. So what they do with it is up to them. But but if you have a, a qualm of conscience about that, you can surely give the cash. There's nothing wrong with that. There's other things you can do. Um, and I've, I've seen these things given to other individuals, both by myself and by others who I've talked to about what they give. And here are some of those things. Number one, canned goods that have the pop top on them. The canned good is usually a little shorter than a regular size canned good. 
uh, and it has the the ring that you pop the top off so they can easily access it if they don't have a can opener with them. You can also give, um, if you know there's, there's a particular off-ramp where they're usually standing or a particular intersection where they're standing and you know the fast food restaurants in that area, you can go to a general supermarket that has the whole array of different fast food gift cards or you can go to the fast food restaurant itself that offers its own gift card unto itself, purchase prepaid gift cards that are for this particular fast food restaurant or this particular fast food restaurant, you can give that to the person and say, you know, there's there's such and such a restaurant for this card right around the corner, put an amount on it and give it to them. Uh, there's different things you can do where you know they're not going to take the cash and use it to do something that's immoral, like they're, you know, supporting their drug, their, their illicit drug habit. So there are different things you can do that can give you peace of mind in that regard. Now let's go back to the blueprint as we wrap up here today. We, we talk about that blueprint, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. You mentioned that these works of mercy can both be penitential for the person performing the work of mercy, but also an act of almsgiving. Now, unfortunately, Father, in, in some areas there is a false dichotomy that exists that you are either a prayer and fasting Catholic or you are a, a work of mercy, uh, what, what we hear sometimes called a, a social justice Catholic, and one is at the expense of the other. And that, that also is unfortunate because really this is not an either-or. This is, this is both and. We are called to prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Why is that? Well, again, because we're, we're a body-soul composite, and we also have uh, an innate need to not only care for self, but an innate need to care for the other, to be other-centered as opposed to self-centered. So while prayer and fasting I can do for myself, I'm not an isolated individual. My almsgiving is for the other. Now, I can also pray for the other as well as pray for myself. I can also fast for myself and fast for the intention of another. So it is re those, those first two are reciprocal, but the almsgiving is always aimed towards the other. And that's why there's some coalescing here between the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, which, which are mentioned in number 1434, the Catechism, and the 14 works of mercy, the seven corporal works of mercy and the seven spiritual works of mercy, uh, which are number 2447 of the Catechism, as I mentioned earlier. But they dovetail, right? Because we, the individual, do them uh, as an act of penance for ourselves, to want to do good for the other, to make reparation for past sins where I might have been too focused on self, where now I go out of myself through the 14 works of mercy and help the other person. And so we can say that, that the, the 14 works of mercy are the handmaidens of the three eminent good works. Um, they help guide us not only to be better ourselves, but also to come out of ourselves through that process to be other-centered as opposed to self-centered. Wonderful. Take a look at these corporal works of mercy. There are a lot of activities that you can maybe spend an afternoon assembling. Um, definitely worth taking a look at and something to do as a family. Father, could I ask you to end our time with a blessing for our listeners? Certainly, Adam. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, descend upon you, Adam, and everyone there at Covenant Network, and all of your listeners of Roadmap to Heaven, and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. 
Friends, you are listening to Roadmap to Heaven. We want to thank Father Wade for being with us. Father Wade Menezes from the Fathers of Mercy. We are going to take a break. We will be back right after this. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. It's a good time to pause on this Thursday for our Daily Dose of Encouragement with Patty Schneier. And this week we are reflecting on the precious blood of our Lord. Patty, I look forward to today's encouragement. Well, I have to be honest in the reflections for this week. I've never really spent a lot of time pondering and praying, journaling about the precious blood of Jesus. And so this was a really good exercise for me personally to just go back, think of my own story about how important blood is on a both human and spiritual level, but then also share these reflections from other people. Of course, John Paul II and then even Peter in his first Peter chapter one. So the precious blood of Jesus we've been talking about all week as the source of our hope. And then there was a question, and I thought this was really, really important that was in one of my reflection books. Here was the question. How is the blood of Christ effective in my life? Have I ever even thought of that before? How is the blood of Christ effective in your life? Do we realize that by receiving the precious body and blood of our Lord in holy communion, that his blood literally mixes with my blood physically in my bloodstream? If we receive our Lord in holy communion and we know it's body, blood, soul, and divinity, as that sacred host is dissolved into our bodies, his blood is mixing with my blood in my bloodstream. That just blew me away. So we receive, of course, divine life within our mortal bodies, but it is mind-boggling and it is worth pondering. So it's a journal question for all of us today. How is the blood of Christ effective in my life? How is Christ's blood pouring through your bloodstream and then just out from your very being into the world because he's so much a part of you every time you receive him in Holy Communion. Ponder the question. It's a great one to think about. It truly is a great question for us to ponder on this Thursday. Patty, thank you for this encouragement. And that concludes our hour together here on this Look Back edition of Roadmap to Heaven. Let's close out our morning in prayer as we always do in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Church, pray for us. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons, pray for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I'll still be on vacation tomorrow, but we've got another great look back show for you. We're going to hear from Father Paul Hazing about seminary formation and Julie Lassiter about late night holy hours, two of my favorite segments we've aired here on the show. Until then, thanks for listening to Roadmap to Heaven here on Covenant Network. And if I were here, I would remind you to pray your rosary today.